Hi everyone, good afternoon. Welcome to SP2023, panel three. Uh, it's identifying and addressing longer term work trends, role of the state and educational institutions. I'm the moderator, Dr. Faisal, and um, there's some first some housekeeping rules that I have to actually read out. Um, this session is open for media coverage. Um, for questions, please do type them on the Q&A panel on the right of, your, of the screen. Uh, we invite all our conference part, uh, participants to, to contribute to our discussions in a respectful and safe manner. Uh, but we do, do reserve the right to ensure that it's always the case. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our uh, three speakers. First, we have Dr. Gok Sunju. She's the Chief Skills Officer, Skills Development Group, Skills Future Singapore. The second speaker is Ms. Lo Kargek. She's the Chief Executive Officer, Institute of Technical Education. The third speaker is Mr. Indranil Roy, Executive Director, Deloitte Consulting Southeast Asia. It's my pleasure now to uh, invite uh, Dr. Gok Sunju to be the first presenter. Dr. Gok, please. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Pfizer and IPS, for the opportunity to participate in the uh, Singapore Perspective 2023. Uh, so over the next uh, 10, 20, 15 minutes, I will give a broad overview, a bit of behind the scene of how the whole government is coming together to coordinate uh, the issues of skills needs, and then how we translate it into trying to meet supply and uh, skill supply and skills demand. Can I just confirm that uh, we can launch the slide up? Thank you very much. Yeah, so so uh, before I start, I, I just want to say that while I talk about the role of states uh, as government is coordinating the skills supply and skills demand, uh, I must say that ultimately, the, the success of the whole skills agenda requires the whole nation. Uh, I think as Ms. Chan talked about it this morning, be it individuals, parents, community, schools, institutions, employers, uh, and our tripartite partners. So let, let me uh, quickly go into uh, sharing a high level how we coordinate behind the scene. And then I will share uh, my, my personal perspective of what individuals, enterprises, and our Institute of Continu Continuous Learning can, can do more uh, to, to really bring about the success of uh, ensuring that we have a competitive workforce and a competitive economy. Yeah, so, so in Singapore, we take the whole skills agenda very seriously. Uh, in fact, we do a lot of a preemptive uh, uh, planning. Uh, we look at how, where the economy is going, how, how is the economy is transforming, and then we look at what kind of, anticipate what kind of skills will be needed, and look at what kind of workforce, who will need what kind of skills, what kind of job will be transforming. So it's a very, uh, we do a very preemptive measure to address skills. Before that, before we, we see a skills become a, a, a skills gap become a problem. So I think that is in a nutshell how we go about doing it. And you can see this through throughout um, throughout the whole um, um, uh, all the time. But there will be periodic that will be more um, a more structured way of looking at things. For example, when we do ITM our industry transformation map, we do sit down uh, as a whole government with uh, industry partners, institute high learnings. Uh, tripartite partner to look into where the industry is moving forward, how if, how how are the industry transforming, then what kind of workforce or kind of skills. So there will be a more structured approach uh, that is done once every few years, 
And then ongoingly, together with MOM, uh, the Workforce Singapore, we also look into publishing uh, the job transformation map as they, as they intend to help enterprises understand how they can take advantage of transfer, uh, business transformation and then parallel with developing a strong uh, workforce with the right skill set to support their needs. So there'll be ongoing uh, initiative working with uh, partners, industry, be it trade association chambers, research institutions, uh, innovation lab firms in Singapore. So as a, as a nutshell, that's how we coordinate behind the scene. Uh, this, and this is ongoing, as I say. Um, very quickly, how, then how do we then behind the scene do that? Uh, because today the technologies allow us to do a lot, a lot of things and they're available, available data. So SSG as a skill authority, uh, we leverage on big data. Uh, we have access to uh, training data, of course, because that's, that's our, our admin data. We access uh, CV data. We access uh, job posting data, not just Singapore, but globally as well. And we look at uh, also investment data where the trend of the technology is going to be matured and it's going to hit the market. It's going to change some of the way that uh, business functions or job functions is going to change. And we extract that data and we ask ourselves, can we, we confirm it and validate with, with our industry partners to say that it, is it true? How is it coming along to Singapore? Is it near term? So the, the, the immediate term to the medium term, we can actually foresee and forecast that. And of course, we use um, um, uh, machine learning algorithm to do emerging skills predictions, whether the skills will continue be, to be uh, emerging importance and high growth over the next 12 months. And that will inform our, our uh, uh, planning of the supply of the continuing education and training course or CET courses. And we will translate this into uh, job skills insight uh, shared with our unions, shared with our uh, IHL, shared with our companies, industry. And that, that's how we kind of ensuring the supply, a uh, skill supply, skills demand and skill supply can, can meet each other and try to close the skills gap. So from time to time, we monitor on a quarterly basis whether essential uh, core skills area that we're focused on, that our economy needs are actually closing. We'll never close the skills gap for sure because things are actually moving very quickly, but at least minimally, we want to make sure that the skills gap are not widening and we have sufficient number of people with the right skills uh, in the economy. So that at the, end, at the end of the day, it's very important for our, our, our citizens, our workforce to have the right skills so that they can, on their hand, fulfill their career aspiration. And on the other hand is enterprises do have uh, the right uh, skill workforce to, to, to serve their needs. Yeah, so, so this kind of uh, explain what we do. And uh, how, how do we go about publishing it? Uh, of course, we work very closely with sector agencies and trade association and chambers to look into how to release, and even union to look into how, we, how can we release targeted uh, job skills inside in, into the market to help individuals, to help enterprises, to help everybody make the key decisions they need to do about of skills upgrading. Um, so last two years, uh, 2021 and 2022, we started to publish a annual skills report, which is a skills demand for the future economy. And it, the skills report will always be looking ahead for the next three years. So the, 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 the most recent one was released in November uh, uh, 2022. Uh, it talked about the three economies, the green, the, the digital, and the care economy. And why we took decided to take an, a pan uh, economy view instead of looking at sector view is because we realized that there's a lot of common and shared skills needed across 
So it is easier for us to identify these skills and talk about it at a broad level to say that, in fact, if you look at the digital economies, every sector will have digital components. And in fact, more and more sectors are behaving like technology company now. So I think that that is, a, is an enabler, enabler uh, uh, layer of skill set. Then the green is coming fast and furious because of our, our Singapore's green goal, uh, 2030, and also the whole demand across uh, global demand about compliance, about uh, carbon, carbon uh, trade, carbon credit. Uh, all, all this will require us to start thinking ahead. So this was one major piece that we completed last year, the green skills uh, taxonomy that we've done for Singapore. Uh, and that will shape the way, help to guide us in terms of what kind of training is needed across different, uh, different occupation, different uh, industry, different uh, workforce segments. So it's, it's quite important. And we, we look by the releasing of the skills, um, job skills inside, we also realized that citizens actually want very targeted uh, advice uh, that they need. So we are thinking through how to provide uh, tools, uh, applications, and also data set that is available to them to make their own informed decision and to chart their own uh, uh, career and skills development planning moving forward. Uh, so, so this in a nutshell, um, um, uh, what we do behind the scenes. Of course, I welcome uh, feedback and, and uh, uh, suggestions how we can do this better uh, together as a, as a uh, dynamic uh, skills ecosystem. So uh, very quickly, I'll go to um, what I feel, how I, how I see why individual moving forward in, in, in the very VUCA world, what they, we should undertake and, and, and empower ourselves to do something. Uh, it, it, is, it is no longer tenable to say that, okay, we're gonna stage our jobs and then we'll, we'll outsource our career development, our training needs to our employer to make a decision for ourselves. I think the day is over and we have to know that uh, we need to build this, I call it building the capitals for career versatility. We, there will be time that we will be changing career, either voluntarily or involuntarily, uh, that will be that's a given. So I think if with that in mind, we need to we need to become the identity of a working learner. That means we have we need to have a learning career and also at the at the employment or career, a working working career and a learning career at the same time. And it is not it is no longer tenable to say okay I think about it later on or maybe when I'm retrenched then I think about it. But the need will be there for us to really be able to learn things uh, in the agile manners and even learning ahead of time before we even need it. So I think that the training of employment and learning career will be quite essential for all of us to, as part of our, our career, career health, uh, career health, how can we build our career health? And secondly, it's about looking at ourselves as, uh, I think financially, maybe a lot of us are, are quite, quite savvy at managing financial assets, uh, or how much bank account we have, how much CPF we have, how much investment we have. So we, we, we do think about financial uh, assets, but I, I like to propose that we also need to think about our personal assets in terms of transformative assets and productive assets. Do we have enough productive asset skills, capability, expertise to be able to continue to be productive? Uh, then do we have enough capability capacity to be transformative on our own? And, and that requires us to think about networking as well, not just about just skills and, and about exposing ourselves to, to more uh, things outside our familiar zone. And then, of course, take a very long. I think we need to take a long-term view or care about the short term. Long, why I say long-term view is because we many of us will live to one hundred. Like that's a 
that's almost a given. And, and if it's a hundred year life, how are we going to plan and 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 recharge ourselves throughout that multi-episode of uh, career career changes? And I think that's quite important. And it will be very helpful, I think, we should we can expand uh, more career learning guidance and coaching. Uh, whether is it within company, uh, whether it was it is it within uh, our, our workplaces, whether is it individual like ourselves take up. The, the, the kind of skills to, to be able to coach someone else in career learning. I think that's quite important. And this is an, an area that I do think that we can spend more resources uh, building that. So next I talk about uh, enterprises. Uh, I think this morning, Min Chan shared his view about uh, how enterprises can look more closely with institutions and also offer their, offer their uh, skills development opportunity. Uh, I, I certainly think that this is essential. And I'll say that moving forward, and, and in fact, now and enterprises has to look into beyond, move beyond uh, recruiting based on credential or recruiting people based on qualifications to really embrace the the skills based skills based recruitment is what can I recruit somebody with the right skills, the right aptitude and attitude, and as well, and then train them, uh, develop them further because you can never behave like going into a DIY shop to buy a, a, a spark that will fix a part. I think that day is over because even in, internally at, at, at any workplaces, jobs are changing all the time. We knew that the company's processes change, a new product coming out, we need we need people to really age up uh, in the learning, learning and age up manner, acquire new skill sets. So whatever we think we need them to have, maybe we may change very quickly in the year to come. So I think that's quite important in, in terms of skills-based recruitment. Likewise, is to think about how to manage a talent and skills pipeline, not just about today, my own workforce, but the future workforce, the future workforce in terms of offering internship, working with IHR, look at the work study programs, because workplace is the best place to learn. They, they offer authentic uh, uh, opportunity and, and work experience. I think that's quite key to think long-term of where's my talent pipeline, where's my skills pipeline coming along. Uh, and thirdly, it's about providing workplace learning. And, and that's the reason why uh, SkillFuture Singapore is working with our Polytechnic, our SIT. Uh, and also I think IT has had their COJTC program is to help workplaces to see how can become a, a OJT workplace and people can learn on the job. And these are quite essential as a new capability. I would say ideally is all workplaces must have this capability. And skills-based career development is key in moving forward with the the employer, employee will want to know, do, do I have opportunity to, to be exposed, to learn, and then what kind of career, a skills-based career track I can move up, move across, move in between uh, job roles. And, and some of the lead uh, companies in Singapore are already doing that, like, like uh, DBS is doing very well. But I think we need more companies to be able to do the skills-based uh, career development. So I think in a nutshell, that is what enterprises about how to lead the skills-based hiring, learning, and planning. Uh, last part uh, of my slides is talking about uh, our partners, uh, the education and training partners. Uh, there will be demand uh, to say that when I, when I go for a training, when I send myself for training, it has to achieve an outcome. So I think the, the moving forward, the demand will be very high in terms of can, can the IHL, can our training partners deliver outcome-based uh, CT interventions. And, and, and very simply is if employer needs help, or enterprises need help in transformations. They want to learn something and come back and apply. Can the training really support enterprise transformations? 
or for the individual perspective is I want to learn a new skills to do career pivot. Can the training allow me to do that? So I think in a, it, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be challenging and complex because how, how, can, how can IHL or training partners in the class design to tailor to this kind of diverse needs? Uh, then what kind of what kind of what kind of services, additional services or partnership needed to deliver this? Uh, this is a requires some thinking because I think it's beyond just pedagogy. It's also about a partnership with company. Can part of the part of the learning be like work, workplace? Can can the individual bring the uh, work, workplace needs to the work, to the classrooms? Then how do we manage some that need to go for because of career preferred some is want to learn in order to solve a problem. Is it two different programs or is it the same program? So I think this requires some rethinking about the kind of operating models of having a course approved or then launched in the market and then hoping that individual will go learn and go back and apply. So therefore, the third point is we can't leave the learning application to the individual and come and say, you go back and you think about how to apply, but really it's close to the nexus of how can the learning carry on from institution-based to workplace, maybe come back again, and, and the flow has to be quite uh, quite smooth so that we can see the outcome. And, and the last thing is about, I think we need, some, we need more innovations in adult learning, how to innovate adult learning, because the classroom base is, is you know, first you take people away from class, secondly, sometimes people just need very fast micro bite science learning to quickly able to do a job. They don't want to, leave the workplace to go and attend. So there may be some us really uh, online learning very quick, sharp, sharp, then how, how can how can we help them to do that? Is it workplace responsibility to do more, do more of the micro learning, whereas the institution base is it to do more of the more structured uh, learning? So I think the, the this, this is an area that we need to do more uh, because we need to be able to be more successful in, in helping individuals to, to learn well and, and also multi-generation uh, learner in the, in, the, in the market. Uh, there will be people in the 20, 30, 40, and 50. So I think we need to think through that quite carefully. Yeah, so I think with that, I, I end my uh, sharing. Uh, back to you, Dr. Pfizer. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Gold. Um, we will have our Q&A at the end after all three presenters have presented. Um, the next speaker is uh, Ms. Lo Kagi. Ms. Lo, please. Hello, everyone. So while waiting for my slides to be up, I just want to say that my sharing on this topic today will be from the perspective of an education and training institution. As you listen to me, I hope you bear in mind two considerations. One, at ITE, we are dealing with young students. They are aged between 17 to 20, and they have yet to join the workforce. And two, given their youth, they are less inclined to think about long-term challenges. Nevertheless, it is still our job in ITE to consider how best to arm the students with the right skill sets and mindsets and be future ready. Next slide. There are three key driving forces, the economy, jobs and skills. And this will shape the curriculum and learning experiences that we provide for our students. Among the many points in this slide, I just wish to highlight three trends. One, the jobs these days do require a higher level of skills. This is driven by industry transformation, digitalization, and redesign of jobs. Two, 
we see the emergence of hybrid jobs, which require employees to activate skill sets from more than one discipline. And three, we do see the importance of helping our students understand the need for lifelong learning so that they can deal with job disruptions and career transitions in their future. Next slide. To address the needs of our IT students and graduates, we focus on three key areas, employment, aspiration, and probability resilience. For employment, we need to ensure that the courses and curriculum at ITE are industry relevant. The skills taught are valued by employers and our graduates can transit smoothly into the workplace settings. For aspiration, we note that the vast majority of IT graduates hope to progress beyond an IT qualification, either immediately upon graduation or at some point in their work life. For employability resilience, we need to consider ways to equip our students with transferable skills and impress upon them the importance of having to continuously add new skill sets to their portfolio. Next slide. I mentioned earlier that the new reality is that all jobs require a higher level of skills. Currently, some IT students graduate with a higher NITEC, while others graduate with a NITEC qualification. Going forward, we want all IT students to graduate with a higher NITEC and have a higher level of skills for their first job, as well as a stronger foundation to pursue further education and skills upgrading. So at ITE, we've started to progressively revamp all our curricular structure to enable all IT students to graduate with a higher NITEC. This slide shows the curricular structure of courses that lead to jobs in the ICT sector. All courses will be pitched at the higher NITEC level. The year one focuses on broad ICT sector foundation modules, and it allows time for students to better understand themselves as well as the industry sector before they choose their specialization. Years two and three will have the specialized modules as well as two internship experiences. After completing the higher NITEC, graduates have the option to progress into the workplace or pursue a diploma in the polytechnic, or they can also pursue a diploma through IT's work-study diploma, which adopts an apprenticeship model where the trainees are hired and working in the companies. They receive a monthly salary while undergoing structured on-the-job training at the workplace and on-campus training at ITE. In all this, employers play a significant role, either by providing inputs for the years one, two, three, of the higher NITEC curriculum by providing internship opportunities or becoming IT's work-study diploma partners to co-develop the work-study diploma curriculum as well as to hire and train the trainees. Next slide. We ensure the training experiences at ITE for our students are authentic, exciting, and motivating. And here are some examples. So for the green economy, I have four photos here. They show automotive engineering students learning how to handle electric vehicles, aerospace engineering students learning concepts of sustainable alternative fuels and emerging technologies like electric air taxis. Installation of rooftop and floating solar panels is included in our electrical engineering course. And the management of 
data monitoring systems and predictive maintenance are included in the facility management costs. For care economy, I have two examples here. In the nursing and paramedic courses, our students have lots of practice through simulations before they go for their practicum in the hospitals. For fitness and sports management course, our students get to use probes and sensors to gather data such as heart rate, oxygen intake rate, muscle strength, and so on, and hence be able to develop customized exercise regimes to meet the needs of different customers. Next slide. Now, this slide focuses on the digital economy. I would like to highlight three points. First, emerging sectors and jobs. The top left photo is of a horticulture technology hub for students to be trained for jobs in the high-tech farming. We teach students to be adept at IoT, automation and programming. The bottom left photo shows a data center training facility to train our students in IT network infrastructure and server management. Both high-tech farming and data center sectors have created new jobs and we want our IT students to be able to seize these new job opportunities. The second point I wish to make is about the potential of IT students for the ICT sector. The top photo in the middle column shows our drone and AI hub, where we teach students about wireless solutions and integration of AI with drone and robot technologies. IT students have a strong passion and potential in these areas. Visitors who listened to the students' presentation noted their deep knowledge and skills and commented this is truly a case of passion unlocked. The bottom photo in the middle column shows one of the winning teams of our students' digitalization challenge. The three boys developed an AI inventory management system. During their internship, they had to do stock taking and they noted that the scanning of barcodes of devices and assets and entering data into a database were laborious and time-consuming. So they came up with a faster automated solution. They used Azure Analyze Image to detect and identify objects. And then they used Power Apps and Power Automate to create an app to upload the images and automatically update the database files. The judges were duly impressed. The two examples that I've cited show that clearly IT students are capable of so much more when they're fired up and given the opportunity. The third point I wish to make is that we recognize that digital skills, uh, uh, horizontal skill sets that we should teach to all our students. So we teach our students data analytics, AI, and use cases of AI applications in the different trade courses. We have also started to teach them low-code apps development. Next slide. So far, all that I've described in terms of curriculum development, state-of-the-art technologies and software, authentic and exciting learning opportunities, these are all made possible through the strong support of industry and employers. We recognize that industry engagement and partnership development are critical for IT to enrich our programs, facilities, and learning experiences. Next slide. Let me move from the employment team to the aspiration team. Many of our graduates aspire to go further in their education and career, to achieve a diploma and to take on higher responsibilities at work. While a number of our IT graduates will 
progress to the polytechnics, there are still much unrealized potential and aspirations. ITE has thus created two additional diploma pathways. One, the technical diploma pathway, where we collaborate with our overseas education institutions, and two, the work-study diploma pathway, where we partner employers. Currently, there are six technical diplomas. Automotive Engineering and Machine Technology is in collaboration with the Ministry of Education, Youth and Sports, Butterworth, Germany. Culinary Arts Diploma is in collaboration with Institute Paul Bocuse, Lyon, France. Silver and Structural Engineering and the Beauty and Wellness Diploma are with BTC Hong Kong. Hospitality Management Diploma is with EHL Hospitality and Business School, Switzerland. There are now 40 work study diploma offerings. Together, the six technical diplomas and the 40 work study diplomas will offer additional places each year to enable IT graduates, whether they are fresh graduates or already working for a number of years. We will, this will enable them to fulfill the aspirations of skills upgrading. Next slide. We offer career and CET counseling service for IT graduates. To do the counseling meaningfully, we leverage life and current data for jobs and skills analytics and insights. So in the analytics example on the left, we use light cast insights on jobs and skills to illustrate the current skills demand of a particular industry sector and help identify skills gaps and suitable CT courses for our past graduates. For example, the IT graduates of earlier years may need to learn the more current programming languages. In the analytics example on the right, we use job tech and AI tool that matches the job skills demand against the skills taught in IT courses. This analytics help us to identify job sectors, adjacent job sectors that IT graduates could pursue. So for example, in the two years, 2020 and 2021, because of COVID, jobs were scarce for IT events management graduates. Through job tech, we were able to identify logistics as a suitable adjacent industry sector where their skills will be relevant. Hence, we redirected the events management graduates to seek employment in the logistics sector. Next slide. The third theme is employability resilience. When our IT graduates start their career or work life, they are in their early 20s. They will work for another 40 to 45 years before they retire. And in the 40 to 45 years of their work life, they will likely take on many different jobs, pursue different careers and in different industry sectors. Seven jobs and five different careers. That is the prediction of, by the Sydney Morning Herald. Everybody has a different prediction, but the, the point being they will encounter different jobs and multiple careers. Given the age profile of our IT students and the limited time that they have with us, how do we build their employability resilience? We do so in three ways. One, we include transferable and horizontal competencies into their curriculum and learning experience. Life skills, digital skills, AI competencies, these are all needed in all jobs across different industry sectors. Having these horizontal skills will be helpful when they switch jobs and careers. 
The second way is through providing cross-disciplinary electives. This will broaden the students' skill sets and perspectives and hence enhance their openness and readiness to pivot to adjacent sectors. The third point is that we provide ECG in the years one, two, and three of their study. And we start to develop in them the habit and mindset of analyzing jobs, understanding skills demand, and identifying skills gaps. They will have to continue to do this as they navigate their way in the 40, 45 years of their working life. Next slide. So I thank you for listening. And in a nutshell, we focus on enabling employment, realizing aspiration, and building employability resilience. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Lowe. Um, may I wish to invite now our third speaker, Mr. Indranil Roy, please. Mr. Roy. Thank you, Dr. Faisal. Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me okay. Perfect. Thank you. So my full name is Indranil. Um, I get to hear my full name only when I'm in trouble with my wife. Short form is Indro. Uh, everybody calls me Indro at work, so please feel free to do so. Um, for those of you who don't know me, um, I've spent most of my career at the intersection of two different things. So my by training, I'm a robotics engineer. Um, and by vocation or profession, I'm an organization psychologist. So the convergence between data, technology, and psychology has been the focus of what I've done. And uh, I set up the Future of Work Center of Excellence for Deloitte. Uh, it was a global center of excellence set up in Singapore. And I ran it um, to a point where some of the research of the Future of Work Center of Excellence became part of our day-to-day -day business, something that I run right now called Workforce Transformation. So uh, if you bring, bring up my slides, um, I want to talk to you about a new concept that we have been working on for the last couple of years, the concept of modern work, and in particular, the 10 rules of modern work, and why this is important, not just for you as an individual who is in the workplace today, in whatever capacity you're in, but at the level of companies and enterprises like Deloitte, as well as countries like Singapore, in particular for a country like Singapore. So let me go back to my story. If we go to the next slide, let me go back to my story in terms of what I was doing for most of my career. I was a researcher looking into predicting what the future of work is going to look like. So most of my slides used to look like this, that we are in a marketplace of perishable skills. Half-life of skills is less than four and a half years. So every four and a half years, you have to pretty much upskill yourself quite radically. Um, work from anywhere, 45% of work can be done from anywhere, remotely, et cetera. The pandemic came, came along and proved our prediction to be correct. Um, and uh, you know the relentless pace of change, jobs are getting disrupted every four years or so. Um, I, I do a lot of work with my multinational clients and uh, the, the, the going joke is that um, you, know, uh, you are no more than two and a half or three years away from a restructuring that changes your job forever. Um, the many pathways to success. So uh, in my career, I've taken three turns in my career from engineer to financier to consultant. Uh, for my son, who is in college at the moment, it'll probably be five to six turns, career turns in the lifetime. Ms. Lowe was referring to that in the last slide. Um, and ecosystems of expertise, any program of work that organizations and enterprises are doing today involves many, many different partners. So there are often six, seven vendors, uh, different experts coming in and helping with the program, et cetera. So it's not really just a team of people within the company that is doing the work. It's being done by many, many different 
uh, players in the ecosystem. So most of my slides used to look like this, and I was very proud of my slides. And I used to talk about the future of work, and everybody used to look at this and go, oh, wow, Indra, you know so much. And then um, what happened about uh, two or three years back, as, as, as things happened in pandemic, I was taking a, a look at all of this, and I was beginning to ask a question to my clients. And that question is, so what? What does this make you feel? How are you coping with this? As an individual who is mapping your career, whether you are a junior person coming into the workforce for the first time or you're a mid-career manager. And if you go to the next slide, and I started asking this question, you know, uh, explain to me how you have felt at work over the last three months. And it was interesting. I started off with a private bank, 200 private bankers, uh, oil and gas companies, government uh, organizations, um, telecommunications companies, uh, tech companies, hyperscalers. Across the board, these three words came up. I'm feeling overwhelmed at work. I'm feeling frustrated at work. And I'm feeling anxious at work. And this was quite interesting because while all of the fancy stuff that we were talking about in the future of work, we were guiding our, our advice and our comments um, to, to countries like Singapore. What should Singapore do? We were guiding our comments to educational institutions. How should you rebase your curriculum? To companies, how should you think about career paths and learning? But we were saying precious little, almost nothing to individuals, except scaring the hell out of them by saying these are all of the factors and forces of the tsunami that's going to hit you, and you are going to struggle throughout your career. So this is what really made a turn for me to stop talking about the future of work and start talking about modern work. So to me, modern work is the framework and the rules for each one of us as individuals, not only to cope with what is happening in the workplace today, but to actually enjoy it. Not feel overwhelmed, not feel frustrated, not feel anxious, but feel in control, feel awesome every day, and feel like we're growing faster than we've ever grown before. So if you go to the next slide, that is what brought us to doing the research around the 10 rules of modern work. So I'm gonna take you through the 10 rules. And the reason why we call them 10 rules is because we wanted not to use jargon in this approach. And for a consultant, you have no idea how difficult that is. Um, but we succeeded in, in getting everything down to very simple English so that you can take this and you can apply this straight away in the context of your workplace. So there are three rules of control that is directly gonna help you stop feeling overwhelmed every day. There are three rules of awesome, that is gonna get over your frustration at work. And there are three rules of growth that is going to take away the anxiety that you feel that you're falling behind at work. And then if you listen to me carefully, there's one golden rule at the end. So let's jump into it. If you go to the next slide, let's go into the 10 rules of modern work. Next slide, please. So I'm gonna start off with part one, the three rules of control. Now, before I do this, I really want you to imagine something. Imagine that in your work environment, in your company, in your organization, imagine these 10 rules were being not only followed, but embraced by everybody around you. Imagine a, a future in Singapore where everybody, whether that person is new to the workforce or a CEO in a large organization, knows how to apply these 10 rules on a day-to-day -day basis. That is the future I aspire to, not only for myself, but for my organization, for my ecosystem, as well as for Singapore. So let's jump in, how to take control. Can you go to the next slide, please? So the first rule of modern work 
is that unlike traditional work where a lot of the motivation you used to think will come from the company and the organization and your bosses, in modern work, you have to bring your own motivation to work. We call it BYOM because no one else will. You work in a network. You are not really in a pyramid of hierarchy. You are in a network of skills. So the motivation factor that the engine that drives you every day, the battery that you have to charge every day is up to you to get that charged. Now, very, very few organizations teach this to their employees in day one. And this is what in Singapore we need to do. How do you manage your motivation at work? And there are three drivers and you need to learn how to manage them. One is autonomy. How do you maximize autonomy in your work? so that you can set your own goals, you can set your own pace, and you can work from wherever and whenever you want to. How do you create a sense of mastery in what you're doing? How do you get a sense of what are the skills that you want to be really, really good at, want to be world-class at, and how you can apply your work or use your work in order to gain mastery over the skills over time? And third, having a personal purpose, not the purpose of the company necessarily, but a personal purpose and how you can use that to drive you on a day-to-day -day basis. My personal purpose is to get the concept of modern work to a billion people on the planet. I don't know whether I'll be able, ever be able to achieve my purpose, but this is the reason why I can make this presentation 10 times a week or 15 times a week and not feel tired. So how do we teach our employees to the skills and capabilities to maximize autonomy at work, understand mastery and gain uh, mastery in certain skills? and figure out their own purpose and remind them why they're coming to work every day. Next slide, please. So that brings me to rule number two. Now, this is a complicated one, but hear me out. The rule number two is about goal setting. Now, most employees, at least I was taught when I came into the workforce, that most of my goals are going to be medium term. And by medium term, I mean annual or quarterly. Why? Because that is the way shareholders look at company performance, and that is somehow by default has become the way that employees think about their own performance. And that is quite silly because it's not motivating at all. So if you look at modern work, the advice that we give and the skill that we teach our employees is to think about goals only in the long term. So three years out, what do you want to be? What do you, do you want your business to be? So what you see on the slide are actually my goals, my team's goals. So in three years time, we want to be 10X, 10 times the size what we are right now. And that translates to a 3% improvement every week, oh, sorry, every two weeks. So think of your goals in the long-term, which is gonna give you aspiration and excitement, and then translate straight away to the very short-term. Very short-term meaning a couple of weeks. So what do you want to be able to do every two weeks? And that is the bottom of the slide. Those are my goals for every two weeks that is going to get you to those long-term results, skipping straight past the medium-term goals because long-term goals give you aspiration. Short-term goals give you action and release dopamine, which is the motivation um, driver. But what happens when you look at medium-term goals that are neither aspirational or not action-oriented, typically your quarterly goals, is that you get anxiety, you get cortisol. So that is one of the things that we need to teach, how to think about goal setting differently from modern work. Let's go to the next slide, rule number three. The third rule of control. Um, and some of you um, have, have, have uh, talked about this with me uh, before. Uh, the whole idea is to think about your job just like a prime minister would think about his or her uh, stay in, in, in the role in term limits. So most countries have term limits four years or five years for prime ministers and presidents. I would encourage you to think about your job in terms of a time limit, three or four years. So I think about it in four years, 
So there is a period that you ramp up, there is a period that you transform, that is a period that you reimagine, and then is a period that you transition. So if you think about your role in terms of term limits, it really helps you think about your career and you shape your next job while you're doing the current one because modern jobs are going to be disrupted in four years or less. So those are the three rules of control. Moving on to the three rules of awesome. Go to the next slide, please. So the three rules of awesome, let me remind you, are basically to get over your frustration on a day-to-day -day basis. So rule number four, the first rule of awesome is that your users, not your boss, will judge your work. So in traditional work, you were used to, or I was used to, I was taught that my boss or my boss's boss is going to judge the quality of my work. And that is how I my, my performance was managed. Uh, and that is how I knew whether I was doing a good job or not. But in modern work, your users, not your boss, will judge your work because modern work is an open talent market. Now, this is something we really need to reskill our people to understand. And we are running programs and courses for our own team members to really understand this. Because if you don't, you might get stuck in a situation where your users don't particularly like what you're doing, your boss probably does, and you're probably a year or less from being completely disrupted in your career. If you go to the next slide, please, rule number five, the second rule of awesome is to work in sprints because in modern work, everything changes every two weeks. So you can set goals as much as you want. You can set plans as much as you want. Every two weeks, those goals and those plans will have to be changed. So what we teach employees to do in modern work is to develop sprint plans for two weeks, run for two weeks, then pause, celebrate the wins, look at where, what went wrong and understand how the next two weeks plan needs to be changed. It is a meta skill to work in sprints, but it is something that will help you remain in the awesome zone right throughout your career. If you go to the next slide, rule number six, one of the most important rules in the pandemic era, work from anywhere, sure, but learn how to work out loud. Working out loud, simple definition is as follows. If you know how to work out loud very well, then people will be talking good things about you behind your back in the workplace. Let me remind you of what that is. Um, there are certain principles and levers that you can pull. So like publishing your work, knowing how to make your work visible to others, being a connector, connecting two people in the workplace and saying, Jane, meet Jonathan, you're working on similar things. You might want to get connected and learn from each other. So very simple tactics that allow you to become visible, even if you're not coming into the office and sitting face to face with your colleagues every day. So those are the three rules of awesome. And let me quickly branch to the three rules of growth. If you go to the next slide. Now, remember, this is to help you not feel anxious that you're not growing fast enough. And all of those predictions with the future of work is not going to gobble up your career. So let's move to the simplest rule of growth, which is to turn your workflow into learn flow. Now, how do you do this? There are activities that you would be doing, mostly for white collar work, on a weekly basis, like user gaining user feedback, doing work pro product analysis, figuring out what is the operational data of users using your work product, work team retrospectives, getting the team together and saying, what did we do last week? What did we learn from it? Those are work activities, but those are actually learning events. So one of the things that we have done within our organization and our team is to treat them as actual learning activities and to spend, make sure that every employee is spending 20, 25% of his or her time on those activities that are actually work activities, but also learning events. 
So that is the simplest thing to do. Rule number seven, turn your workflow into learn flow because you must plan your learning just like you plan your work. Rule number eight is more difficult. Let me move to the next one. Now, upskilling has been talked about a lot and um, that is good. You should upskill. If you're a marketing person, you should upskill to become a better marketing person. But believe me, in modern work, that is the fuel for the slow train of growth. The fuel for the rocket ship of growth is cross-skilling. What that means is that if you're a marketing person and you learn analytics, and then if you learn product management, and then you learn CX, that is when your career becomes a rocket ship. So helping students and employees understand how to cross-skill in a smart way can really boost their career growth. And then we go to rule number nine, which is something that even I struggle with which is that most of us come at work from one of these four vectors, a desirability vector, mostly marketing and creative people come from this, a feasibility vector, engineers like me often come from this, a viability vector, which is more of a finance person and you know, investors come from this, and a sustainability vector, very often learning professionals, sustainability professionals, et cetera, come from this. The whole idea is to build your career in a way that you can master all four. And that is really, really hard. But mastering differences is important in modern work because complexity needs diversity. And because you've been listening patiently with, to me for the last 15 minutes, I'm going to give you the last one, which is the golden rule, if you go to the next one. And I've talked about control. I've talked about awesome. I've talked about growth. This golden rule gives you all three. It gives you more control, more sense of control. It gives you tremendous growth, and it makes, it, makes you feel awesome every day. And that rule is go to the next slide, that you always run a side hustle. Now, in traditional work, we were told, just focus on the work that you're doing, just focus on the job that you're doing, try and do it as best you can, and don't pay attention to anything else. Everything else is a distraction. That is the exact wrong advice for modern work. If you're doing modern work, and if you're not running a side hustle, you are missing the plot. And that is leading to a lot of anxiety and a lot of tension, a lot of stress that you're facing. So always run a side hustle. A side hustle is not a hobby because it has something called investment that you're putting in, whether it's in terms of money or your time or your reputation that creates ownership. But it's more like a hobby in the sense that it is linked to your passion. And it is more like a hobby that it helps you build new skills and confidence and connects you with people to create perspective. So it's like hobby plus investment makes a side hustle. So those are the 10 rules of modern work. As I promised you, everything in plain English, something that you can apply to your work every day, and believe me, if we can make all Singaporeans proficient in modern work, a lot of the other strategies that we're trying to drive in terms of skills development, in terms of transformation, in terms of career transformation, et cetera, will become easier for us to execute. Thank you very much. Back to you, Dr. Treisler. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Roy. OK, now we'll, we'll open up to some Q&A. Um, uh, as, as mentioned, um, let, let me ask a few questions to kickstart the discussion first. And I think one of the questions is that, um, you know, putting it into Singapore's context, with an, um, um, a slowing uh, workforce, an aging workforce, um, a segmented workforce that is multi-generational, you know, you have um, with the boomers, Gen X, Y, millennials, and Z, I think, right? So about four or five different categories. Um, so in, in that sense, can I go back to Dr. Gog first and, and ask her about this whole idea of um, building career versatility, yeah, which I think is a common thread throughout the three presentations, and the notion of twinning employment and learning. Yeah? Um, um, 
could she say more, uh, uh, Dr. Gok, could you say more about this? Because I wish to connect this to the, uh, to the uh, idea of, uh, from, from Ms. Lowe and uh, Mr. Roy as well. Dr. Gok, please. Yeah, thanks. thanks for the questions. Yeah, career versatility is about, okay, maybe we, because mobility is about moving up, moving across, but versatility, I think it has a notion of not just about which direction you move, but the the ability to cross into a new area, the ability to cross into, the, the, the closest is, is to cross, cross over to a very adjacent area, like uh, maybe I just top up two, three skills and then I'm still familiar, I still stay in the sector, but I do slightly different roles or totally change a, 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 a more bold, bold kind of career change will be to go into um, things that is quite totally different from, from, from where, you, where you're from. So I think that the versatility is essential because we do not, we want to be open-minded about what's to come and what's available and not get stuck with the fear of losing out and say, oh, maybe I should do the safer way. And there are, there are statistics and research to show that the people who make early move and bold move, if you look at the, uh, the lifetime lifetime earning, of course, I'm using lifetime earning as a, as a yardstick, uh, is greater than those who do less move and more timid move. So I think the career versatility requires some kind of mindset change about, I want to be on the move, uh, not to settle down, and I'm always constantly on the lookout and I want to look at what opportunities arise. So it's really taking charge of that, that what do I do, what, what do I want to do next uh, uh, concept of planning my, my career, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Gok. Um, Ms. Lowe, you have some programs that uh, seem to combine work experience, you know, on the job training, entrepreneurship. Could you give uh, a bit more take on that, please? Um, so from the IT co uh, context, as I highlighted earlier, our students are a bit younger, uh, but still it is useful for, for them to be mentally prepared, that uh, in their lifetime, be prepared to switch job, change sector. So how we try to do this is that in um, when we give them different internship experiences, they go to different companies, they look around, they can already understand that the course that they take don't just train them for one specific job role, but can be for different job roles. Um, we also give them the uh, opportunities to, to do projects, uh, to push them to go beyond their comfort zone so that it becomes a habit uh, and that this is something that they know they are going to encounter and the resistance to change will become much less. Um, okay, for, for, for Roy, I'm sorry, for, uh, for Indro, the question is, okay, I'm going to connect back to the uh, screen, this question from, from the audience here. Uh -huh. It's regarding your side hustle rule. Uh -huh. Yeah. Which I, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, okay? Um, so, so the question basically is from what I've read, and it's sort of like disappeared now, essentially, it is a challenge, Roy, right? It's, uh, because essentially, you know, two things, right? The civil service will say you don't side hustle, right? This is a one and only job, end of story, okay? Uh, two, do you have the energy? I mean, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're, we're talking about this new work environment. We are connected like 24-7 virtually, okay? There's no energy and you're actually like forbidden. You sign the contract, say no side hustle. So, so what, what do you do in that sense then? 
Roy, please. Yeah, Dr. Faisal. Um, so two questions in there. So one is, will your organization allow you to run a side hustle? That's a fair question. Um, so I don't think my organization is going to allow me to start a consulting firm on the side, right? It doesn't make sense. Uh, if you are working in a telecommunications company, you're not going to start a, an MVNO on the side. That, that doesn't make sense. But you can volunteer. Uh, you can set up uh, something that uh, helps people in distress, right? Um, the side hustle is not just to make uh, lots of money. It's not a profit venture. It is a learning venture. It is a passion venture. Right. So um, there are lots of people that I know who are in the civil services in Singapore right now and who are running side hustles that are helping people in times of need. They are building community actions um, that are perfectly in line with their passion and their values and the accepted boundaries of the organization in terms of what you are supposed to do with your free time. Um, there are people in large organizations that are running side hustles that are creative. They're running uh, bakery um, projects, right? So they are setting up websites and they're selling cakes on the side. And again, not to make money, right? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, you cannot become a, a billionaire selling cakes on the side. So the whole idea is that it has to be a passion project. It should teach you new skills, keep you curious, and take your head away from the 24-7 stress and pressure and intensity that you deal with at work on a day-to-day -day basis. That is the purpose of side hustles, just, just to make that very clear. The other piece that you talked about is, where do I have the time to do this, right? Now, that is why it's it has to be linked to your passion. If it is not linked to your passion, then don't bother about it, because whether you have the time or not, you will not have the energy to get up and go, right? But if you find something of passion, and I also talk about my side hustle. My side hustle is a, is, is a business that helps... Um, uh, is a startup that helps uh, young children uh, in the middle school and high school figure out what they want to do in their careers and what kind of colleges they want to go for. And we use artificial intelligence to help kids in schools in rural India, for instance, that don't have a career counselor in the school to figure out, is there a program in, let's say, Kentucky State University that I can get a scholarship for, right? So I'm so passionate about it that if you ask me to, to check the AI code on that, at 11, 11 o'clock at night, after I've had a full day at work, I will still do it. Now, that is my passion. The question is, what are you so passionate about that you will not feel tired? In fact, it will give you energy if you focus on that side hustle in the time that you have left after work. That is the question you need to ask yourself. And honestly speaking, to be brutally honest, if you can't find anything, that's fine. Thank you, Indru. Okay, I'm going to jump back quickly to, to Dr. Gok now. Okay? For workers, again, from the participants, who feel overwhelmed and anxious, right? But the need to upskill and upgrade, you know, this, the, <clears throat> the CAT mode kind of thing, right? What is your experience in terms of the most effective first step to actually take? Very good questions. Uh, first of all, I thought we should borrow from in, intros, uh, uh, a recommendation under the rule is how not to feel anxious. <laughs> I think that's quite important. Um, in, in fact, there is, I, I can understand why people feel anxious about change coming and, and there are a lot of things to learn, even the simple apps that the, the company has subscribed to, the apps have newer versions now, you do the new the new versions, and the, the learning tend to be um, never ending. In fact, it will never end. Um, but first of all, I thought we should, we should 
take care of how we respond to change. I think that start with the, the, the wellness mindset, not to be not to be stressed by a certain situation. Is so I think that that should to take care of the feeling anxious first. Because I think we can when we're, we're not feeling anxious, we can think clearly. Once we're feeling anxious, sometimes we just get stuck and get sucked in by this this, this seemingly overwhelming uh, tsunami that's gonna hit us. But I think sometimes a lot of times are in the mind how do we how we're gonna get detached from the situation and, and, and think clear. So I think the, the wellness part about detaching and then don't, don't feel anxious but the plan ahead. And come to uh, uh, reskilling there are things that from the experience of dealing with the citizens, the, the they are always started with they can always start with not signing up a full-time course, looking at what are interesting first and explore the kind of bike sign courses. Uh, explore things that are free learning online because there's a lot of online learning that are free. Uh, learn a little bit and say, hey, okay, this is quite interesting. Maybe uh, not, not too difficult. Then do I want to go into something more uh, more structured? Uh, who, can I learn with? who can I learn with? Uh, should I sign up some modular short courses first? Yeah, once you get the hang of it and you need to, sometimes you need to find an opportunity to practice as well, not just about attending multiple courses, but can you apply the kind of learning uh, first? And, and, Using a work contact, using a personal contact to apply the learning. Then gradually, yeah, you can move into a more structured one. If you're seriously think about doing a more uh, a more structured, a modular that will lead to a, 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 a certifications, and then ask yourself, is that what you really want to do? Uh, what kind of uh, uh, employment opportunity, or what kind of uh, where can I apply this learning at workplace? So it's a, it's about taking that small small steps, and we we do have people who are from um, people who I know, uh, maybe from school teachers to become a, a, a senior software engineer. And in, 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 she, she did that career switch in 18 months, and it is possible. So I think it's about taking that step. And throughout the journey, I must say they are hard work. Uh, hard work, they need to sit in front and learn the new skills. So there's no easy shortcut way to learn a new skill, but take a taster, do something more, more formal, and yeah, before you commit to something long term. Go, Miss um, Lowe, there's a question here about um, the importance of STEM education, right? Um, and judging from the uh, your PowerPoint, there's a lot of emphasis on the um, on the um, technical, you know. It's not, it's not surprising given the, the way that the economy is going. Uh, tech is, you know, up and front and center of everything, really, right? So the question here involves um, talking about humanities. And if I was to tweak that a bit regarding the importance of soft skills, right? Um, which, which is in a sense also in, as important as technical skills going forward. But the challenge is you seldom get workers that actually are good at both normally, right? So, so how, how do you inculcate this in, in, in ITE, for example? This element of soft skills like communication, you know, creative thinking, you know, design thinking into their curriculum, let's say, as they are going about understanding the technical aspects of their um, work and study scheme. Uh, Ms. Lowe, please. Yeah. Um, I might have given the impression <laughs> that the jobs are highly technical, but I also want to, before I talk about the humanities and soft skills, I just want to say that Technical skills, I think we should respect and value them. Um, the IT graduates, they are very good with their hands. 
they can uh, fix problems, whether in a car, they can uh, develop apps, they can do things. And all this actually require a certain level of cognition as well. So the, in IT, we call this thinking hands, right? Um, and thinking is not just manifested through writing long essays for humanities. Uh, thinking is also through doing things, solving problems, uh, creating new innovations. Um, we do emphasize communication. We do emphasize uh, understanding current affairs because this is a way for us to ensure that our students is actually part of employability resilience. Our students need to know about uh, what's happening in the economy, what's happening in the society, what's happening around, around the world. Then they will understand that indeed the clean energy uh, sector is going to create new jobs or indeed that some of the jobs that they're going into, it is not just jobs in demand in Singapore, but they can also bring their skills overseas and there are projects that they can involve, be involved in. So for example, the installation of solar panels. Singapore companies do have many such projects overseas as well. Um, we, we, the humanities or the soft skills that we deliver is uh, in situ. That means as you teach the students, you impact the, the knowledge, you tell them what's happening in Singapore and around the world or in the future. Um, in terms of communication, we recognize it is important. So much as I say that it's about thinking hands, but we also tell our students, just now in Drew's point about work aloud, right? <laughs> we also tell our students that you need to be able to communicate well. So we have uh, incorporated communication as a pedagogy, meaning that as we teach, we get students to present, we get students to talk about what they are doing, we get students to share their ideas. And these are all very important as we want to ensure that IT students are well poised for the future. Thank you, Ms. Lo. And with that, I jump to Indro, who is the perfect example of uh, tech skills and soft skills. Indro, you're, you're, you're into robotics and you're into psychology as well. How do you manage to actually pivot from one to the other? And, you know, I mean, what's your own take on this? Intro, please. Um, Dr. Faisal, I wish I had a, a clever answer to that question as far as my own uh, career is concerned. It was purely by accident. So I, I went into engineering because uh, like every um, uh, Indian kid in my, in my family, if you couldn't become a doctor, you tried to become an engineer. Uh, and if you couldn't become a doctor and engineer, God help you. Um, so I did engineering, not particularly, I uh, wasn't particularly interested in it. I just happened to be good in math and science. Um, so the, the psychology choice was a more um, in, intentional one when I, I, I began to realize that a lot, of, um, a lot of the reasons why things do work in organizations and obviously most of the reasons why they don't work is organization psychology. So that was more of a, a choice. Um, the, the, the point about how do we think of the, about this for Singapore is an important one, right? So um, Singapore has a heritage of streaming students towards either science or humanities, sometimes for a very, very young age. And let me tell you that for modern work, that is one of the most dangerous things that we can do, right? It is no good telling a 40-year-old that your soft skills are not very well developed. Go take a program in communication and expecting that person to come back and really become a fantastic communicator in six months. Uh, these are things that are built over time. And as your other panelists have mentioned, 
that these are things ha that have to be built into early career. So if you look at the US experiment with liberal arts, for instance, um, which is a combination of, by definition, it's a combination of math and science, uh, sorry, uh, science and, and, and humanities, uh, allowing you to create programs that bring together not just soft skills, but a, an understanding of uh, sociology, of philosophy, of the way the world works, being able to navigate the world in a different way, of cultures, for instance. How do you operate in a, in a third culture or a fourth culture? Um, alongside the importance of technical skills, this is very, very important. And from a Singapore perspective, um, I wish and I hope that we pay attention to that in our policymaking, especially in early career education, because the streaming into one or the other side very, very early, and then the repetitive kind of messaging to the student that if you're doing math um, and if you're suddenly reading a book on history, that something is wrong with you. Is, is very dangerous for uh, the effectiveness of the workforce. Dr. Pfizer, can, yes. I, can I just- um, Yes, I was, I was about to <laughs> jump to you, Dr. Gok. I know you're about to say something, but can I just sure. partner this to a question we, we actually have here? It's about inclusive workforces, right? Hmm. And, and how do you design, uh, I'm going to ask Dr. Gok, uh, uh, Mindro, um, because I think it relates to the point you made earlier. So, 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 Dr. Go, um, the question here, and and you know, you, you can you know take it with the point that you actually wanted to actually mention earlier, inclusive work workforces. Um, how would you design a uh, training or a uh, design the pedagogy, you know, in terms of training programs that would attract diverse learners, you know, and 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 bear in mind the segmented workforce that we have here as well. Dr. Gok, please. Yeah, thank you. But before I answer uh, Pfizer's question, no. I want to answer. I yes. just want to do yes. a quick response to what Intro talked about the the not to sort as um to to do silo uh, learning. Uh, Singapore's education system has evolved uh, very quickly. In fact, over the last decades, you can see that the multidisciplinary are coming into picture. In fact, kids are taught uh, how to do inquiry thinking, even doing math or doing science or even doing CCA. So I thought the, we have moved on. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't try to try to uh, typecast the students uh, too young and too early. And in fact, if you look at, if look at, look at our, the, the evolutions of our education system and even the IHL today, uh, students are started to be able to pick subjects, combination, or even Karthik just talk about students having the options to, to learn multidisciplinary modules to enhance their their repertoire of understanding and knowledge. So I think it will have, we have moved on quite quite far a bit, quite far from, from there. So, so very quickly come back to uh, how to how do we tailor whether or not there is a need to tailor uh, inclusive uh, pedagogy to for class. I, I I would rather say that from our the success of some of our, our very high quality uh, education and training partners that we have seen in the market today. I just share quickly what they have done. Uh, what they've done is, first of all, is age is not a matter. Is if the company were to send a, 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 somebody, somebody for training, the 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 su very successful CT partner basically saying that, hey, if you have a problem, don't send one staff, send a team, because a team come together, go back, they have partnership to make their project works. So the when the company send, typically you send somebody more senior, experienced, somebody maybe more junior. 
uh, uh, they are more tech savvy. Come, coming together as a team to storm on the issues, going back and implement is highly successful. And we have seen very successful high outcome based uh, uh, training delivery through this kind of partnership of bringing a team in with, uh, with people from different experience, different divisions, a different age group coming together to learn so. So, so I think it, it required the kind of uh, engagement, it's pre-training engagement to have that conversation about what company really wants. So it is a it's, it's a voice down to how much customizations can a training and education institution or, or provider provide to tailor to their needs? Because there is a class size issues, can, can you tailor the, the, the training so specific to the to the to the training if the if the company has sent multiple badges, perhaps it's successful. But what about uh, uh, the kind of pe uh, uh, pedagogy that is more flexible, allow this kind of bringing the work problem to be solved into the classroom, then we solve it together. And, and allowing, if it's, a, if it's a purely individuals coming in and run, uh, they are also advantageous, uh, because they're also advantageous having the young uh, uh, mid-career and the uh, more senior people coming in because the kind of cross-learning and cross-facilitation Maybe even better than uh, a very homogeneous class. So I think if you are if we are learning designer, uh, we have to know who is coming into the class, what is the intention, what is the motivation. Then we can design. Uh, so it's very difficult to say we have a one single method, a one single approach to design a very effective uh, curriculum, effective uh, pedagogy. Yeah, maybe can't even add on since you are the educator. Um, actually, a lot depends on what is the topic or the, the discipline or the skills that you are teaching. Uh, my point is that perhaps we should offer different modes of learning. Uh, because If they are working adults, actually time is always uh, limited. So if we offer options where there's a bit of online learning, there's a bit of uh, discussion online, then there's also a bit of coming together face-to-face -to -face and learn online. And depending on the topic, it, it may be that they have to do some hands-on. And for the learning to stick with the learner, I think it's best that they immediately apply what they just learned. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ms. Lowe. Okay, before I jump to intro, there's so one question for you, Ms. Uh, Ms. Lowe. And it's, um, okay, it's quite interesting, actually. So, this is a question, right, at verbatim from the screen, okay? Given that most educators stay in the teaching service for a long period of time, they do not change industry, how can they then be role models to students and teach them the need to learn, relearn, upskill, and across skills? There you go. That's I must tough. say that I'm also an, I am an educator. Uh, my specialization is actually chemistry. Well, I teach chemistry. As well, right? Okay. Uh, then I, I was in the school system, but I also left the school system. Right. I think, um, so to address the key point about how an educator can role model to the students about the importance of uh, learning, relearning, etc. I think we can always share with our students what, uh, what is the uh, new skill that we, we focus on we put our mind to go and acquire uh, what is uh, uh, some new knowledge that we went to acquire or what is uh, when we went to visit uh, an industry or a company, uh, what, what is the conversation about, what are the observations. And this way we demonstrate to our students actually a few qualities, right? One is that we stay curious. Mm -hmm. we, we 
emphasize the point that things are dynamic. And we also um, emphasize the point that we do have a lot of stereotypes. We think it is like this until we, we saw, we interact, we visit, then we realize that actually things are quite different. Uh, and so I think the if the teachers, it's not necessary that the teachers must always go and attend a course and so on, but if the teachers can share observations, uh, conversations, but they themselves must also demonstrate the fact that they are curious and then pointedly point out, previously I thought this, but now I realize that huh? previously I didn't have the skill, but I pushed myself, I, I pushed beyond my comfort zone and I challenged myself to do something different. I think this will be excellent uh, ways of small ways of demonstrating to students the importance. Yeah. yeah but I mean if, if if I just may add a bit, I think they also have like IHLs, you know, those um, um part-time Okay, so I, I was thinking in terms of the, the educators, let's say in the school system. For us, the educators in our IHLs, they all do industry visits. Mm -hmm. They all because we send all our students out for internship, they all visit companies. And when they visit companies, they are not, not just talking to the student they supervise, they're actually talking to the company supervisors. They walk around the, the shop floor or the company and they figure out what has changed, what processes have changed, equipment has changed software have changed and uh, when they supervise our students on uh, projects they also realize that you see that this is how things are dynamic and we all continue to learn together with our students i think for uh, educators in the ihl sector there are a lot more natural opportunities mm. yeah thank you miss lo um indro yes quoted question here okay it says here um the nine plus one rules are all directed at employees as yeah. either individuals or team members, right? Do employees have the ability to follow these rules in most modern organizations? Right? And how might these rules apply to employers, schools, or even the state? Okay, so wide-ranging question. I'll break it down and try and do justice to it. Okay. So one is, do employees in all contexts, can they apply these rules? Um, Again, I'm not going to give you a conceptual answer. We are we are we're using the ten rules. We have something called a modern work um, studio, where we teach employees how to apply these ten rules into their day-to-day -day work. And pretty much almost all of the ten rules, other than the side hustle piece, which is a little bit different, um, are applicable right away um, across levels in organizations. But I have to caution that it is primarily meant for white-collar work. If you're a factory worker, if you're a, let's say, a janitor in the um, hospital system, for instance, um, all of a sudden setting long-term, short-term goals uh, may not be applicable that much, right? So I, I, the boundaries is white-collar work, I would say, right? Um, and, and, and that itself is a, is a, is a massive uh, part of the population of the workforce. The second question, uh, which is an important one, is that what advice are we giving to companies? Before I before I answer that question, one of the, uh, I, I would say one of the fallacies that um, a lot of people in, in roles like mine doing research on the future of work suffer from is that we believe that the adaptability of institutions and employees, um, we, we get it wrong in terms of which, which, which parts of our ecosystem are more adaptable and which parts of our ecosystem are less adaptable. We think that individuals are the least adaptable. 
countries will think first, governments will first do all the thinking around adaptability. We'll see uh, uh, ahead in the horizon. Then we'll advise companies and then companies will take action and then employees will catch up because they're the least adaptable. Dr. Faisal, my, all of my research tells me that is exactly the wrong way around. Employees are the most adaptable. As individuals, we are the most adaptable. Ask your grandmother who's just moved onto the iPhone how long she took to adapt to a device that has more technology in it than the, 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 the ship that landed on the moon. Individuals are incredibly adaptable. We are like elastic bands and we know how to adapt. Organizations are far less adaptable and are far more rigid. Government institutions, and I'm sure there are people on this panel who will disagree with me on this, are the least adaptable of the three. So I would make the argument that if from a country perspective, Singapore perspective, or any organization perspective, if we can give the tools to the individuals, the speed at which they are going to be able to adapt is the fastest. Company policy takes time to catch up, yes. Company uh, uh, structures, company um, tools and systems take time to catch up. But we do run uh, programs for our clients, organizations and enterprises to say, okay, how can you support a different way of goal setting? Um, I'll give you an example. In Deloitte, we talk about users, not your boss um, judging your work, right? So one of the things that we've done within Deloitte across 250,000 employees is basically allow individuals who are using the services of another individual to give feedback on what they think about that service. And there are basically answers to two questions. One is, would you use this person in your team to provide this service again? And would you recommend this person to somebody else? And that is the set of data points that is now used for performance management across the enterprise. Now it takes time to implement something like that, but that follows rule number four, which is your users, not your boss will judge your work. So you take away a lot of the bias that comes from the manager or the manager's manager and gives the opportunity to the broader consumer of the person's skills to be able to judge the person on their work. And that is how performance is designed uh, within Deloitte. So that's just one example, but organizations can do certain things to enable and support these, uh, but it takes time. Thank you, Indru. Uh... I have to jump to, to Dr. Gog. Uh, I, I'm sure she's got some points, but there was a question here which I also wish like you to consider, Dr. Gog. Um, you know, this four, four and a half years uh, lifespan of skills uh, is very um, stressful. I mean, the more I hear about it, uh, okay. So <laughs> that is my own personal take. But the, the question here talks about in, is there any enduring skill sets, you know, anything that lasts with you throughout the whole lifetime, Dr. Gog? That, that you have found in your research, you know, that the government has has tried to actually um, adapt or, you know, evolve, you know, to help uh, workers with this uh, CET track kind of thing. Dr. Gott, please. Thanks, thanks. Very good questions. Uh, um, first of all, I from the data and statistics that we saw, I would say that um, not all skills and not all jobs uh, will expire very quickly, not all. Some sector, some sector, some some occupation, the 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 speed of change is slightly slower. Some sector, some occupation, the speed of change is slightly faster. But if if we look carefully in terms of what is the fastest changing, uh, I would say if you dig down inside, dig dig deeper, it's actually 
the technology application set side of the house that is changing fastest. For example, if you say once upon a time, we have Microsoft Excel to do an analysis, data analysis, then it comes Microsoft BI tool. Uh, then it comes Tableau. So you realize that, or then after it maybe got SQL, uh, you realize that there are enhancements over time in terms of what is the latest application that make things even faster, easiest, and the, the need to use the new, new, new uh, technology, new tools will be useful if we know how to do that. So if you look at it, it's actually incremental changes to the kind of apps. It's not totally something that we mind-boggling that we've never seen before. So the under underpinning a design, the application is still there. So I think it's not to be so overwhelmed by skills that expire. Uh, that's number one. Number two, there are enduring skills. In, in fact, what we just talked about, soft skills are the most enduring. And, and when I say soft skills, uh, in 2020, SkillFuture Singapore worked with uh, 120 uh, C-suite to, to put down, they say that we analyze what is the soft skills that's most essential uh, that they, they would like to have to see in terms of their, their workforce. And it, it we come down to these 16 critical core skills. And they are all soft skills. Uh, one basket, the way we put into three baskets, one basket is about self. How do you manage self? Uh, that come from self-awareness to, to always upgrading ourselves, to looking at basic digital fluency, to have a global mindset, to the, 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 the ability to be adaptive. That is one basket of five skills there. The second basket of skill is really about people skills. How do we work with people at workplace? Because no matter how many robots we have, how many application technology ultimately we're dealing with people at workplace as a supervisor, as a peer, as a co-worker, as a service provider. It's about dealing with people. Then it's about how do we how do you have customer centricity kind of thinking, always about how to serve the customer well, how to develop others at workplaces, how do we do, how to influence others in, in terms of decision making, how to communicate effectively. It may sound like, oh, this is a very motherhood, but it's so fundamental. Uh, in, in fact, employers are frustrated when they say, oh, how come my staff is like, like, like this, this kind of skill? Typically, it's the people's skills at the basket. Then the third basket is thinking skill. Is how do you think, uh, how do you see about the noise to sense make about what is potential as opportunity? How do you uh, have transdisciplinary thinking? How do you creatively solve a problem? And that is the kind of thinking skills. So it's three baskets is social, the social, emotional, digital policy is there, and also thinking skills. And this set of skills can be downloaded from a SkillFuture website. If you take a look at critical course, Singapore critical course, you can download the whole set. So I think these are the most enduring because regardless of where we go, regardless of which era, it's about first ourselves, self-management, self, self awareness, working with people, and then we, we have the mental cognition to, to know how we think and how we can think better. Dr. Faisal, can I just make one quick comment on that? Please, please go ahead, yes. Yeah, so um, I agree that uh, certain skills are much more enduring than the four and a half year turnaround. And if I may leave you with one um, skill that I consider not necessarily, I don't know whether it's a soft skill or a hard skill, hard to say, but it is a meta skill, which means that if you have that skill, it will almost inevitably lead you towards reskilling yourself over and over again. And that skill is problem solving, especially complex problem solving. So if 
the, the, uh, if you find employees that are really good at problem solving. In other words, when they're able to see, take a problem that doesn't have an obvious solution and will attempt to solve it, may not be able to solve it right away, but will attempt to solve it. It will force them, A, to learn certain new things. It will force them to talk to people who may have some better perspective on the problem that they have. It will force them towards all of these other skills that are important in modern work. So if I were to pull out one skill that I would say is not just enduring, but has a tremendous effect on your ability to learn and adapt other things, uh, I would say it is problem solving. Yeah, problem solving is one of the 16 critical costumes. Okay, we, we are times up, but the thing is, I'm going to just go through one quick last round of questions, right? So very quickly, and again, I have to start with Indro, right? Um, solutions on career versatility focus on focus on adjacent of skills, right? Skills yeah. adjacent adjacency. But it seems that you have taken a different approach in looking at um, cross-skilling and uh, mastering of differences. Okay, this is a question from the audience. Um, is it a balance to achieve, or is it your advice, or is your advice superior to the rest? Uh, okay, uh, Dr. Faisal, let me. I tried to do my presentation fifteen minutes, so some of the nuance may have been missed. So let me just clarify one thing. Okay. Cross-skilling is specifically about adjacencies. Okay, so when, when we talk about cross-skilling, we encourage people to think about adjacencies. So what is an adjacency? Adjacency would be, if I understand, um, like I said, marketing, let me try and understand about customer behavior. That's an adjacency. If I understand, if I'm really good at automation, let me try and understand about software development. That's an adjacency. So that is what cross-skilling is all about. The part around mastering differences is about jumping domains. So cross-skilling usually keeps you within your broad domain. So for you're in the desirability domain, right? You're obsessed with what people like and what can you produce that people will like more and more, right? Then you will learn more about the marketing, customer behavior, human psychology, human-centric design, design thinking, those are all adjacencies. But when you jump domain to get into viability, where you're looking at financial modeling, investment thesis, um, discounted cash flow, uh, company valuations, et cetera, that is a big jump. That is why it's a different rule. So rule number eight is easier, which is the cross-skilling one. Rule number nine is much more difficult. That's why I, I started rule number nine saying, even I'm trying to master it, I'm nowhere close to it. So you should try rule number nine only when you are beginning to think about making a jump to the next level, completely next level. So if you are today a head of marketing and if you're going to become a CEO, that is where rule number nine becomes really, really essential. I hope that clarifies that I'm not discounting adjacencies. In fact, it's one of the most brilliant strategies for cross-skilling, but the domain jumping from in, in rule number nine, mastering complete differences is when you're trying to become a CEO or an entrepreneur or maybe the prime minister of Singapore. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Okay, very quickly, a last word from um, um, Ms. Lowe as well before I jump to Dr. Gold. Ms. Lowe, any, any uh, suggestions? I mentioned this. 
recommendations to policymakers that may be tuning in that you'd like to suggest, you know, or push forward, please, from your perspective? Thank you. Uh, I would like to speak from the ITE perspective sure. and make two uh, comments. One is, I think um, Sunju mentioned it uh, in her slide about asking enterprises to do skills-based recruitment. Um, we have always said this, but I think in reality, it is not quite like this. I, I think there's room for us to really hire based on skills, based on competencies, and not hire just based on qualification. I think in my presentation, you can see that ITE students have high potential for ICT jobs. So if we put in our job advertisement, degree needed, I think we, we exclude a lot of people who may have the potential and the ability to perform the job. So I, I will like to make a, a pitch for uh, pushing towards skills-based uh, hiring where you just say anyone who's interested in the job and you, you don't just do, do the paper evaluation. You can set them some performance tasks. I've known of some ICT companies who do performance as, uh, evaluation and they, to their surprise, they find that in the our 100, let's say they shortlist 20, in that 20 who can perform the, whether it's cybersecurity or apps development, there's a mix of different qualifications. So that's the first suggestion I have. The second is that um, I think we still very much measure uh, students' ability and potential based on pen and paper assessment. As I mentioned earlier in one of my replies that um, when the students do fix do problem solving and, and, and so and do some innovative projects. They are not writing an essay. They, they are demonstrating already their thinking. So I think there is room for us to go towards performance-based assessment to assess the potential of students. Those are my two points. Thank you very much. I fully agree actually by the way. As a part-time diploma student, I won't say where. I'm into the CET course. I really am, right? I'm into my fourth semester now. Okay, one more semester to go. Okay, so I'm a living example. Um, Dr. Gog, last word from, from you as the policymaker or something. Uh, you know, um, um, essentially, you know, uh, how would you suggest to the higher ups to look at skills base and not paper based qualifications? And can it be tweaked in some way, some sort of assessment? test or something that you can recommend to um, companies, for example. Dr. Gok, please. Yeah, I think for the public sector side, we are already practicing skills based. We don't don't really look at uh, a credential because when when the candidates come forth and, and have the uh, relevant, I say relevant, but not necessarily must be exactly relevant uh, uh, experience. In fact, the aptitude, I say aptitude, but the aptitude, the attitude, once we have the aptitude, attitude, the rest we can train all the places. We, we actually don't, don't really care. And that's why we, even in my team, we recruited some uh, people from humanity background who were te previously teaching literature, but now he's my data analyst. And because he's just super keen on terms of uh, taking, up, taking on his own uh, passion to learn something very quickly and looking for a place to apply, you know, I think that the passions uh, uh, will, will prevail and they'll just want to give people a chance. So I think from the public sector side, the, the, the move, movement towards uh, recognizing skills and recruit for skills is already happening. And also the, the skills um, skills path, uh, skills-based career progressions. But I think as a whole, uh, for all employers, be it public and private sector, I think we can do a lot more in this area in terms of 
using skills as a common language. Public sector always are doing that. We have a skills and competency framework. Go by job families is easier to implement. But I think within these organizations or employers, is how can we really make this a, a movement? As Karthik earlier mentioned, because if we can do that, I think it really can become a, a successful lifelong learning society and nations and take skills to, to, to see, make skills something achievable and meaningful and have an outcome for everybody and for the organization. I think this is something that we can do together. And every one of us as a supervisor, as a leader who has the power to do recruitment, with the power to decide and plan our workplace capabilities should be a skills champion. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Dr. God. Excellent. Okay. I will have to close up now. And first of all, thank you very much to our panelists, Dr. God, Ms. Lowe and uh, Mr. Roy. Thank you very much. Uh, some closing remarks here. Uh, thank you, audience, for, for actually joining us. Uh, do be reminded that we start again on Monday morning. There's a one-week break, you know, more or less. And on Monday at 9 a.m., Panel 4 will be talking about um, the role of unions in the new social compact. And the speaker is uh, uh, Mr. Ng Chi Ning, the Secretary General of the NTUC. And for this session, we will have um, the recording available again on, on, on the platform once we've uh, 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 done it up in about two weeks' time, if you wish to watch the session again. And with that, thank you very much, everyone, panelists and audience. And we hope to see you on Monday again. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.